Okay, we are officially live. Welcome to Spark Sessions. I'll let her introduce herself in a minute, but we do have Amy Jenkins here with us today. She's the lead lobbyist for CCIA, which is the California Cannabis Industry Association. I am Ryan Cocott. I am general counsel for IKNK Brands and my co-host, who I will let uh, introduce himself as well, Joseph Devlin is with me as well. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Uh, Joe Devlin, uh, recovering regulator and now senior vice president for IKNK Brands and very excited to have with us um, uh, Amy Jenkins, someone who I've had the pleasure of interacting professionally with for, um, I'll just say more than a couple of years. Kind of, I long? think we maybe we were both younger, uh, and certainly yeah. uh, back when um, I think we were both working in the state assembly. That's mm -hmm. uh, that was quite a wise what way you're, while ago. You're taking me way back, and you're dating <laughs> me. Yeah, that was yes. indeed a long time ago. <laughs> right, right. Speaker Speaker Nunez. Um, so welcome. And um, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe tell us a little bit kind of what you're, what is, is what is it that you're doing now and, um, you know, and, and, and your company and you can maybe kind of get into talking about cannabis and cannabis policy. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And it is, as I said before we were on air, it is like old home week being with Joseph Devlin. Um, we've been on many of panels, uh, radio interviews, TV uh, interviews together. So I'm really delighted to be here. And Ryan, thank you for the opportunity. So as you noted, uh, Amy Jenkins, I represent the California Cannabis Industry Association. I've been their state lobbyist since November of 2014. Um, but um, also worked with them when I was a chief of staff in the Senate um, while working on uh, cannabis policy reform, uh, which actually dates back to about 2012 is when I started really getting involved in cannabis policy. Um, since that time, I've been involved in the drafting of the medicinal framework, the drafting of Prop 64, um, was very involved in the in the init initial regulations, the merger of the medicinal and and uh, adult use frameworks, and 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 you know, and I go on and on. So I've been uh, part of this uh, regulatory development, legislative development process for cannabis for many years now. Um, I uh, and as you noted earlier, Joe, yeah, a few more wrinkles a lot more gray hair um, being in this space, but um, I wouldn't be anywhere else. So um, still very much involved and proud to represent CCIA as number as well as a number of other um, cannabis industry um, licensees, as well as the International Cannabis Farmers Association. So um, you know, lots, lots of exciting things to look forward to and, and look forward to speaking with you guys today. Yeah. Well, again, thanks for being on. Um, you've been doing cannabis policy since 2012. I mean, that's, oh. that, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, that, uh, so I started, I, by 2010, I was working for the city of Sacramento. So we started doing some of our cannabis policy in 2011, so 10. So you and I are both right around there. You know, cannabis is measured in dog years, right? Because um, <laughs> it, it's all changes so fast. And um, uh, so, You've seen the transition from, mm -hmm. you know, the 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 
sole prop 215 industry into the kind of regulated market and mm -hmm. have kind of gone through all those storms you know where do we kind of sit you know you know today at the statewide level kind of like what's your kind of just like before we kind of really kind of get into some detail like mm -hmm. you know what's your overall just kind of take of like where we landed right you go back to 2012 yeah. you jump forward to 2020 you know what is you know how, how we how we doing well it's a mixed bag i would say um it's it's really a mixed bag i think you know, generally speaking, um, it's a lot easier to get in a room. Um, obviously, everybody is now interested in the conversation. When I started this process back in 2012, and again, I was a, a chief of staff, um, there weren't a lot of legislators um, and different policymakers talking about this issue. Um, fast forward to today, um, you know, it, it is we are we are obviously a legal product in the state of California. Um, there is a recognition of that. Um, what I've what I really pride myself on is the fact that we've seen a real evolution in terms of, of again the, the the policymakers and how they approach this subject, um, and they're generally supportive. And it's not just your traditional Democratic caucus. We um, quite easily uh, draw equal support among a number of Republican caucus members. Um, and because uh, a lot of this was put on the ballot through voter initiative, any modifications we seek to make um, of this, this framework, and there are many we are still seeking to make, which we can talk about today, um, I have no problem getting a two-thirds vote in that legislature. And so I think that um, really speaks to how far we've come as an industry, um, how much we have organized um, and, and, you know, demonstrated in Sacramento and in the state capitol uh, that we are regulated businesses um, that are operating in the state just like everyone else. Um, it's, it's interesting to me that that was not, that was not an easy case to make when I first um, started on this adventure. And now, um, we are there, um, but that is not to say we don't have a tremendous amount of challenges ahead. And, and you know, I would say this year was particularly challenging with the pandemic. We did not, uh, we were not able to advance a lot of meaningful change, um, and there is a lot that that needs to be done. So, you know, I go back to mixed bag perceptions. We're 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 doing much better. Um, we are um, we have a real voice in the capital, but but a lot more work to do in terms of um, improving barriers to entry, um, you know, making this regulatory climate easier for the industry um, and reducing all the tremendous cost pressures, as well as competing with the unlicensed market. So those are kind of the primary pillars that I um, work under as an advocate. Um, uh, so a lot more work to be done. Yeah. Well, that I mean. Competing with the illicit market, I mean, mm -hmm. that's that's so much of, of, of all the policy work that does happen and needs to happen mm -hmm. uh, really is um, up against the, the, the illicit market, right? Because, right. I mean, you, is, as much as the state would, you know, might love to double the tax, you know, everything really should be get, measured against, like, how does that impact? The, the illicit market does it does it shrink that illicit market does it grow that illicit market so well so i i guess you know maybe kind of get into some of this 
um, a little bit more specifics, you know, mm -hmm. this year was certainly an, an interesting legislative session. We, we, we closed out a, a two-year cycle. We're getting ready to start another one. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, COVID certainly kind of threw, I think, a wrench into the um, uh, traditional legislative cycle a little bit, right? We saw a huge reduction in the number of bills just in general regardless if they were cannabis or not. Um, how did, how did, how did the cannabis industry fare, you know, this COVID COVID cycle? Well, I think, I think the, it, it's a really good question. And I, you know, I think there's a lot in industry that feel this was, you know, again, not as successful as it could have been. And I, I don't, I, I don't disagree with that assessment, but I think the one thing that we really should think about when we look back on 2020, um, there was really, a, to me, a very landmark decision um, early in the year, and that was to define cannabis as essential in California. And so, yeah. you know, it, it, we that that was that was hard fought. There was a lot of work that went into that behind the scenes, but in fact, that that happened, and it really set the stage. Uh, nationally. Um, I, in fact, immediately after that decision was made um, at the administration level, I was fielding calls um, from all over the nation um, about how we did it. And um, and so I think that that is something that I think we overlook as we kind of look back on this year because we didn't achieve tax reduction. We didn't embark on agency consolidation. We didn't get our trade sample bill through. We didn't deal with tax reform. And yes, uh, those are our critical, critical issues impacting the industry. But the fact that we were able to keep our doors open and there was a recognition yeah. that we are in fact essential, I think was um, truly, um, uh, you know, a landmark decision that we should all be proud of. And again, it really does speak to how far we've come. Yeah, uh, it's that is absolutely, I think, a huge, a huge piece of, of, of what did happen. And that was really a milestone kind of almost right. like watershed moment. It's there you we, go. Can talk Better word. we can talk, we can talk about the more act in a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, being yeah. deemed essential, was uh, I think also really big. So, I mean, to the extent that you can, maybe mm -hmm. can you like what went into that? Because on the outside, um, mm -hmm. kind of looking in, I wasn't deeply involved in 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 uh, in, in really anything statewide at that moment. Um, you know, but as a you know, I'd consider myself always like the pragmatic regulator, right? I look okay. at a situation like that, like well, we could you know deem them uh, not essential but people are going to continue to buy weed. So mm -hmm. they're just going to go back to the illicit market. So right. our choice as a regulator, regulated body really was, well, we can deem them essential and keep them, the consumer in the regulated market, mm -hmm. or we can close that, close them down. And they're all just going to go to the illicit market. I mean, that Was that the choice or was, or what kind of, absolutely. You know, what went into it at, at, at the legislature level? What were those well, discussions like? It really started locally. Um, so what you saw, particularly in the Bay Area communities, is you saw um, you saw Bay Area counties really uh, reacting first. So as you'll recall, you started to see these shelter in place. We're now calling them stay home orders, but the, back then it was shelter in place and uh 
And so we really had to start at the grassroots level, at the local level. And um, I think where I, I and I think what was most disturbing was when when you look at the city and county of San Francisco, that was one of the first that um, that instituted shelter in place. The original uh, uh, criteria did not include or did not embrace cannabis as essential. So that was really our first indicator that we had a significant amount of work to do. And I have to applaud the industry overall. And CCA played a pivotal role, but everybody really coalesced around the importance of ensuring that we were an essential business. And so it was really a piecemeal approach. We just started working every single Bay Area county um, and even in some local in cities where they were contemplating um, their own policies around shelter in place and what would be open and not. And so I think what we provided is is really important cover for the administration to do the right thing. So we flipped San Francisco in about 48 hours. Um, we sought pretty substantial modifications to the county of Alameda, county of Santa Clara. They were looking at kind of a bifurcated approach where there would be some ability for delivery but retail would shut down so i right. think it was really about again giving the administration the the cover to do the right thing um and it started with again really kind of flipping these cities and then also ensuring that that other cities that were contemplating their own uh, ordinances or policies around shelter in place included cannabis. And we did that very, very successfully and really in a matter of days. Um, so it, it just yeah. took a lot of work. Um, but but we didn't know until the very bitter end. In fact, I've got to give a lot of credit to uh, Nicole Elliott. Um, I remember the Friday before the announcement, and I don't, it's funny how I remember certain things like that, but I think I must have emailed her at 10 30 11 o'clock at night when the rumor was it still wasn't a done deal and i think the guidance came out at 11 30 but um but we you know it was it was really a nail biter until the very end and interestingly enough um you know the governor as we all know issued um some new guidance yesterday so he's implementing a regional approach to uh stay home orders which is now what it's being uh, called in um at the state level and there was some concern that maybe we would be taken off that essential list and that did not in fact happen so um as we unfortunately go back into um, kind of the stay-at-home policy. We we are still essential businesses, and I think that will remain unchanged. Yeah. I mean, did, did it surprise you that this fight even needed to be fought? I mean, just pragmatically, mm -hmm. this outside looking in. I I was thinking about it when this was all kind of going on. I mean, a yeah. portion of the cannabis market is a medical market, so to me. Absolutely. You know, just by definition, I'm like, why are we even having this discussion? I can I can <laughs> live with you know restrictions like any other retail store in terms of in-store in purchases, that kind of stuff. But yeah. if we have something that has a medical market, did it surprise you that you're meeting that resistance that you did? It, 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 it didn't surprise me so much at the state level, though I would argue if, if, if Bay Area jurisdictions had continued on that path and they had restricted, I think it would have been more challenging for the administration um, to implement its policy. And of course, I can't speak for them, so I'm entirely. This is entirely Amy Jenkins' opinion, but but um, I it, it would it would not have surprised me at the local level. San Francisco surprised me. I'll, I'll be honest. San Francisco really did surprise me, and and I think I think it was really just again a 
matter of time before they flipped, a very short period of time. But um, but local jurisdictions, no, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, having gone through the process, even the most progressive jurisdictions, many are still not um, authorizing you know a broad spectrum of commercial cannabis activity. Um, there's a lot of fear and lack of education and awareness in local jurisdictions. So I think that 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 yeah that that wouldn't that didn't surprise me um that we would have to make those arguments and to your earlier point joe and actually your point ryan the two primary message points that we conveyed was one um all you're doing is perpetuating unlicensed activity which does no one any good um there's a public safety component to that because we're talking about untested products and there is a significant medicinal market patients need these products and the reality is is that a lot of patients don't opt to to purchase a medical id card that you just don't get the same savings. And so you can't just assume a consumer is going in as an adult use, as an adult user, in all likelihood, they they could be a medicinal patient just not carrying that card. So, so those were the primary arguments we led on. Um, but I think it really helped get us where we are today. Do you think that anything coming out of COVID related to the, um, you know, the, the, maybe being deemed essential mm -hmm. um does any of that help with the expansion of of, of local licensing and, and the adoption of local regulations i mean so you know as everyone knows you mm -hmm. know california has that you know two 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 license requirement you need that one from the state you need the one from the locals and if the locals aren't issuing a permit because they have a prohibition of cannabis well you right. know um, you know, we still have a huge chunk of the state that still doesn't offer uh, licensing for cannabis businesses. Are we, are, we, are we about at half or is it still more than half oh, that, no. that we have? Well, well, more than half. I'd say we're about at a third, um, although that is improving. And I think to your question, Joe, I think... Um, Look, look, becoming an essential business, anything we, we continue to do that normalizes this industry is, is going to help change hearts and minds and, and actions uh, at the local government level. Um, when in the context of COVID, beyond that, to your question, I think it's more, it's, this is more revenue driven. And so, you know, when you look at what, what just happened in the November election, if I'm not mistaken, we had a total of 27 uh, uh, local ballot measures on the November ballot. 23 of those, I could be getting this wrong, so we'll say these are approximate, uh, but 23 of those were tax measures, which is usually your first indicator that a local jurisdiction is contemplating, um, you know, right. opening its, its, its doors to cannabis. Of those 23, 21, I believe, were successful. So, and we're already seeing, um, you know, communities like, um, you know, Fairfield and Sonoma and Pacifica and, and other jurisdictions um, opening up. And that that was a real indicator. But if you look at the ballot arguments and you look at some of the, the dialogue at the council level, it was largely driven by revenue. So these were tax measures aimed at um, establishing a local tax for purposes of, of generating revenue. Nonetheless, um, we may we 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 are poised to see 23 additional jurisdictions open up as a result, or excuse me, 21 local jurisdictions open up as a result yeah. of that outcome. So I think it's more revenue driven, but there's cer certainly a COVID component because you know locals are really struggling for revenue in this difficult time, and and we're we're going to yeah. take advantage of that. 
Well, you know, and with Sony, you know, the the state level, you know, they're mm -hmm. getting they're packaging up the budget right now, right? Mm -hmm. the, the budget's in development. Governor's getting ready to release it here in a in, in another month or so. Mm -hmm. um, January tenth is yeah. Yeah. So some of those I've heard some of those revenue predictions are going to be maybe a little bit better than previously thought with COVID, yes. but you know, but at the local level, that could be a very different impact, um, and we may not even really know kind of really the economic impact kind of until like really March or April, especially after like the prohibition on evictions right. passes. Well, not to get off topic, but I, I do, I do remind people oftentimes that, you know, a lot of the revenue generation that, and, and, and the windfall that we didn't anticipate has to do with, with, personal income tax. Remember, we had that extension. And so a lot of the prior projections didn't reflect income tax returns. And so, um, but but those income tax returns are pre-COVID. So what right. what are the revenues going to look like in, in, in 2021 as we're assessing income tax returns? The assumption is it's going to come in much lower. So I think we've, we've got a long way to go. Um, and so I, I think um, I have, you know, from an expectation management standpoint, I, I've, you know, cautioned, um, you know, my folks and, 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 and just wanting to make sure they understand that we, we have a tough year ahead um, as we kind of, as we look forward. Um, but um, it's just something to keep in mind. So I, I think we're, we're still going to see some challenges at the state and local level associated with the pandemic, but again, also some opportunities. And there's also some statistics out there about the revenue generation that um, has occurred as a result of the cannabis taxes. Um, we're, we're seeing significant amount of revenues coming in in that space. So a lot, yeah. lot more to discuss. You know, so on so on that, I mean, so I think I think you're absolutely right. I think cannabis is going to be looked at as um, the golden goose, if you will, uh, to these local jurisdictions that are adopting yeah. um, their taxes. The state this year is on track to collect about a billion dollars in in cannabis tax revenue. Is that is that about right? I think what I read, yes, I think you may be right. Um, you know, and you've got gross receipts tax is largely up and down this, the, the, the state applied at the, at the local level. I think the city of Sacramento this last year collected, you know, in excess of $12 million um, in, yeah. in cannabis tax revenue. I think it might have been closer to $16 million, um, mm -hmm. you know, nothing to sneeze at. I, I guess my question is, you know, a, for the for so many folks on the industry level, look at these the the cultivation tax, the excise tax, um, the 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 gross receipts taxes that are applied at the local level, um, and you start to layer on that all, all that on, and you know those margins just quickly evaporate, and so mm -hmm. I think for the mm -hmm. folks that are operating, it's like well. Gosh, I, I'm now struggling to pay back my investment, or even you know get a return on 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 my investment. Meanwhile, I've got other cities kind of coming on board. What do you think is the timeline, maybe for um, for really having that 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 tax conversation, whether it be at the state level or or kind of at the at at, at a local level? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've always thought that at some point 
there almost needs to be like a round table with the state and, and the league of cities <laughs> and saying, okay, here's how much, here's how much the, this, this product can sustain in taxes, right? It's only this much, right? Mm -hmm. How much is going to go to the state and how much is going to go to the level and let's, you know, divide up that pie. Um, but what's the, what do you think is the timeline of, of having a real serious conversation around, um, around lowering the, the, the taxes for, for cannabis? Cause it, cause it is, it is difficult, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would argue now I, it, it, you know, last year, the year before, but, but most definitely now, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain why. So I think the one, the one thing that we were very pleasantly surprised about last year when the governor introduced his January budget proposal was that he, he demonstrated that he was, he was actually, he was truly thinking about this. So um, as you'll recall, he was, he, he had a tax reform proposal whereby um, you would streamline the tax collection process, include and and simplify it. Um, so we had, uh, you know, collecting uh, the excise tax, for instance, at a point of sale, point of retail sale. Um, and then there also also included in that budget was um, an indicator that that he would be willing to contemplate tax reduction. Um, obviously, all of those things, all of those conversations were tabled uh, when when the COVID pandemic really hit in March. Um, but but the 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 the, the dialogue um, really continues behind the scenes. Um, but it's it's it, it is certainly a tall order um, in terms of of being able to move that needle. And it starts with what what does a, a, a solid tax reform construct look like and, and, and what does tax reduction really look like? And and the charge we have currently as an industry is 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 that uh, the administration would like to see us work in coalition to identify um, what that what that reform construct should look like and what what tax reduction looks like and that that's a real challenge that is a real challenge in terms of getting everybody together um, getting a meeting of the minds on on and finding kind of a universal agreement there there is not universal agreement in industry where I saw progress I know really? you I know I know I know I'll, I'll, I'll let you opine on that one um, but yes, there is not universal agreement in industry and there is not universal agreement among some of our um, traditional allies in labor. And, and until we get there, I think um, it's going to continue to be a challenge, but we have to get there. And, you know, why I say now being most important is we are going into probably one of the most, um, I would say, exciting um, and transformative years for cannabis if we can can come together on um, on, a, on some major policy issues, and and the reason for that is agency consolidation. Um, that that is happening this year, and for the audience, that is taking the three licensed entities that are currently um, you know governing this cannabis industry and consolidating it into a single department of cannabis control. That is going to take. Um, a comprehensive rewrite of of the state law, and it's going to take a comprehensive rewrite of the regulations. So there's frankly no better time for us to be having these conversations because when all is said and done, and we enact you know a new consolidated framework on July one, presumably, and I can talk about that process. Um, 
you know, the hope is tax reforms in it because the last thing we want to do is open up this conversation, you know, after that very immense process that we are anticipating. So I think it's incumbent upon the industry to get together. I think it's incumbent upon the industry to uh, be in communication again with other stakeholders like labor, like the League of California Cities and figure out what really makes sense. Um, I think one area we've all generally decided we agree on is cultivation tax. The, the cultivation tax collection um, is extremely challenging. That that tax um, also, you know, is compounded because it's collected so early in the process and then compounded throughout the supply chain. So I think there's general agreement on getting rid of that. So then the question becomes, um, you know, can we contemplate um, tax reduction at the excise level and, and where do we collect? And then there's all kinds of other ideas floating out there. So, um, but I think it needs to happen sooner rather than later, as particularly um, on the heels of consolidation, which is where we're looking to see some major policy changes. Did I hear you say that you think it, that, that uh, agency consolidation is going to be complete by July? No, let me clarify that. Thank you. Okay. I, I kind of felt like that probably needed to be clarified. So, so let that me sounds that. like that's light speed for that's government. pretty ambitious. I know. So let me let me let me further elaborate on that. So, what the goal is with agency consolidation, as I understand it, is that they will advance a consolidation framework through the legislature. It'll be through the budget process or what we call the budget trailer bill process. Um, so it'll be a framework, but that ultimately the expectation is it will be phased in over time. So what we'll presumably see is again, a rewrite of Malcursa as we call it, um, to consolidate the three agencies, but but it won't, it, it, again, it won't happen at once. And one of the things that's been consistently stressed by the licensing entities and the administration is, is they don't want to see license disruption. So, you know, you're not going to see like all of a sudden we have a department and it's all, that department is managing all licensed activity. I, I think we can expect probably at least a number of months, if not years, um, that this actually rolls out to ensure as, as, the, as little disruption as we can possibly bear as an industry. But the framework, the goal is to at least pass that framework and have it take effect by July 1. Awesome. Am I getting too oh. wonky? No, <laughs> good. Okay. And actually you're, there's you're a... There's stakeholder, there is actually stakeholder discussions that I believe are ramping up beginning next week with um, with business consumer services and housing agency and all of the um, uh, the like the licensing entities. So those discussions, I believe, are are uh, beginning next week. So we should expect a lot more um, stakeholder input and, and a little bit more information on what this this timeline and process looks like. We'll also see some indications in the January budget. So we're all kind of waiting anxiously. Have they decided that it's going to be a new entity or 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 pick from one of the one of the three? Are you talking about leadership or just what it Well, in terms of like the actual entity, I mean is is the yeah. BCC going to take over this or is it going to be kind of Cal Cannabis? Those are always the two in my mind if they mm -hmm. were going to keep it within an existing agency and kind of roll the responsibilities into one that it was going to either go to Cal Cannabis or the BCC. Yeah, I, I think, 
My 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 thought, and it's just I, I could be wrong, is that it it would, and I think the assumption generally is the BCC um, that the BCC will evolve into the Department of Cannabis Control, and then everything will kind of fall under that. But having said that, I know that there's a lot of dialogue um, both internally within the administration and also within industry as to you know, CDFA's role around cultivation. Um, you know, there's a, a real strong desire among many cultivators. Um, you know, we want to, they want to be treated like traditional agriculture. So the more you move away from CDFA, um, there's a perception that, that, um, that, that kind of comes with that. Um, and so I think there is still some internal debate as to, what kind of role CDFA plays around cultivation and whether they retain some of the programming. As we know, CDFA or Food and Ag, California Department of Food and Ag, is charged with implementing the, the um, OCAL program, so the Cannabis Organics program, as well as the Appalachian of Origins program. And these are, these are programs that are traditional programs that would be administered by by you know that department, so so will they still administer them? Will they still will they roll to this new department? I think those I don't think there's resolution on that as of yet, and I I, I am aware that there's a lot of internal dialogue taking place about that. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I know, it's like a lot, right? No, it's like it, no, it is. And there's, you know, and on the and on the industry side, I mean, there really is. I think there, there, yes, there's absolute upside in 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 in, in agency consolidation, right? Um, and I think once we get there, everyone's going to be, I think, happy that we got there. Um, right. There's just so much potential for 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 pain in between, and um, you know, you know. I agree. Licenses and I mean, it could it could it could cause some 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 real disruption. So I, I I'm I'm optimistic that we'll avoid that, but it's certainly I think something that everyone needs to have on their radar that they've got, you know, in the next twelve months, um, maybe eighteen months, um, you know, they've got potential kind of a little bit of a minefield out in front of them as as oh, yeah. as their license comes up for renewal. Um, you know, where, where the agencies are at, uh, in, in, in that consolidation, you know, their, their license has the potential to be impacted. So, yeah, it's, it's a real concern. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and when I kind of think about the timeline that we're looking at in terms of implementation, a lot of these licenses, and I, I, I hadn't, I haven't really thought this through, but, um, I know a lot of them need to be renewed. I, at least I t tend to deal with renewals right around the spring, early summer, and then you get into like the growing season. And so there's a lot of those challenges with making sure outdoor cultivators. So it's all kind of within that time frame that I I see the bulk of this work happening. So I, again, disruption is a real a real concern. And then just more broadly to your point. Um, there's a lot of fatigue out there. I mean, we've gone through, you know, medicinal and medicinal regs, then adult use, then consolidation. And then we've been embarking on cleanup for, you know, the last couple of years um, to try to work out the kinks. And so there's a lot of fatigue out there. And so I think, um, I think it's, it's going to be challenging, but, but there's also opportunity. I mean, I was on a 
call earlier today and with some some license holders and you know just just talking about um, the different interpretations or the the different criteria among the three agencies um, and how challenging that is for a vertically integrated company to have to navigate. Um, those are things that I, I'm, I'm optimistic um, will be resolved. And I think there's some value in a single consistent uh, licensing portal. Um, so I, I, again, I think there's opportunities, but it's also wrought with, with challenges. And I go back to, I just really hope this industry can coalesce, um, around what it wants to see in terms of agency consolidation, because if we do that, I think we'll be, we'll be very, very successful. And I, I'd, I have a lot of confidence in a lot of the folks that are working behind the scenes that they would like to get this right. But um, it's going to take a lot of organization and a lot of communication and a lot of stakeholder input to make that happen. So <laughs> yeah. I'll have to find some time to get some sleep before this. This really, this really <laughs> good, yeah, good luck with that. yeah, I know. Well, it is, uh, it's quite literally three separate licensing processes and they're, I mean, that they're right. similar to one another, but you know, if you could have kind of, like you said, one portal and kind of one streamlined process, as opposed mm -hmm. to, you know, having to go through the drudgery of learning the BCC process, CDFA, CDPH, I think that's, mm -hmm. and I also, I mean, in addition to the licensing, it's, there's regulatory conflicts, like with the, right. you, especially like, you know, as a distributor, you know, we operate as a distributor in SoCal, and there's any number of things that have come up um, where there's interaction with the CDPH regs, for example, making pre-rolls and you just, you find yourself in this kind of gray area, you know, and I'm hoping things like that, um, you know, are cleaned up as we yeah. go forward and kind of consolidate. But yeah. I actually, I had a local tax question for you too, because I was consciously optimistic about all the local cities, you know, coming around and, and having cannabis kind of open their doors to cannabis, mm -hmm. I should say. Do you think we kind of have a conflict here though? Because if, if the narrative narrative is that the majority of these cities are opening up for revenue, um, is is that going to make it more difficult to have the conversation about tax rates? If mm -hmm. that was the main justification for opening up cannabis in a given jurisdiction, I mean that's got to kind of make it more of an uphill battle. I would think it right? does. It, it it does for sure. Um, you know, and I, you know, the the local the local conversations are you know, wrought with our own set of challenges. And, you know, I've, I've engaged at the local level as they've, in some jurisdictions as they've contemplated their, their tax framework. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of the same arguments, you know, too high of taxes and you're, 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 you know, you're reducing the opportunity for businesses to succeed. Um, so uh, yeah, I do, I do think it's, it's going to pose some challenges. So I think my really easy scape, my, my really easy response to that is I'm going to focus on the state level this year and let you guys <laughs> like do the, do, do the heavy lifting locally. Um, but, um, but I, but I, I think, you know, I think there, that's, that's a very challenging issue that's ongoing. I think at the state level, you know, one of the things that we're really trying to do is retool some of our existing messaging um, 
around um, you know why the reduction in taxes is is so important. Um, it really is a barrier to entry. So when we're having these conversations, we're we're talking about how you know you can't get into the system. You can't get into the system with the taxes too high and with this overly regulated um, you know construct that we're all working in. So um, you know we're right. We're really trying to retool around how cannabis can really be a job generator in the state, um, all of the economic opportunities associated with that. And so, you know, how, how where, where, what is that sweet spot in terms of what the tax framework should look like um, that, that allows for more people to get into the system, which actually will mean more revenue realized at the state level. So we're really kind of trying to retool some of that messaging. Um, you know, there's also a consumer component to the tax arguments. You can't migrate, um, you know, adult use and medicinal consumers to the licensed market if it's not affordable. And, you know, you know, the state should really kind of look at this entire framework and the tax construct um, with with reducing illicit market activity and protecting public health and safety. Those should be the primary tenants that 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 our policy should should all kind of come from and, and be driven by. And so that's that's really how we're trying to reframe going into 2021 um, as we prepare to make these arguments for lower taxes. Well, and that's, directly answer your question, but yeah. No, it did. It, and that's my my kind of frustration in all of this is that you know, it's not just in California, but in other legalized states that you have these studies coming out about the impact of a legalized market, right. you know, on the illicit market and on, you know, use by teens, all this stuff. And I, I personally don't think the market is there yet in terms, I don't think we've realized the full potential. And I think no. the entire discussion in terms of is cannabis essential highlights that we still have a way to go in terms of education <laughs> about cannabis to begin with. Right. So I think, yeah. You know, it kind of drives me crazy when I hear about, you know, market projections and these studies, because I, I don't think that the cannabis market in California and other states even has matured enough yet to be able to make any conclusion right. as to those issues. Yeah, you I, know. Agree. I agree with you. I actually but if you're a local jurist, but if you're a local jurisdiction out there, don't do it for the money. What what's like the overall hang up that you encounter with cannabis? Is it is it kit children use usage? Is it um, the inability to reduce the illicit market based on what they you know studies that are looking at other states? Mm -hmm. What's like the main objection or objections that you come across? Um, and just gen just generally to cannabis or because it really varies. I mean, it really it really varies. Um, and it, it 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 based on you know one's experience or preconceived, you know, notions about what cannabis is and what it does. I mean, there, there are certainly the public health components. So when I'm lobbying the legislature, there are, there are those that are more sensitive to, um, uh, you know, challenges associated with, um, actually it's not so much public health, but it's, it's access challenges. So um, I'm still having debates oftentimes with policymakers who are convinced that the legal industry has 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 created kind of an uptick in in youth access and of course as we know as somebody who represents licensed operators and you as as licensed operators know that could not be further from the truth so um in fact youth can't 
can't access our products and, and youth certainly can't uh, afford our products. Um, and they certainly are, are, are better for public health from the, the testing standpoint. But, but I have to go in and, and, and make a lot of those arguments. So there's, there's that access argument that, that's challenging. Um, I have some that just generally um, you know, have, have concerns about addiction. Um, so you, one has to go in and make arguments about cannabis not being addictive. Uh, I still oftentimes too deal with the perception that somehow legal cannabis contributes to higher crimes um, and, and, and challenges with public safety in neighborhoods. So it's kind of the full gamut. Um, the good news, however, is that um, it's a smaller pool. It's really a smaller pool of folks that I have to, to educate, at least in, in the Capitol building, um, on some of these, um, you know, misperceptions. Um, the local level is an entirely different story. <laughs> but it's kind <laughs> of know, on a case-by-case basis. However, at the local level, I'll tell you, it's exactly, it's, it's all those same issues. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's basically, you know, the laundry list of how you're going to ruin my neighborhood, right? You're going to sell right. weed to kids. Like, no, right. we're not. Like, just put a $2 million into starting this business. I, at least the last thing I want to do is lose it for making a $20 sale to a, to a minor. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, and there are studies now that are coming out and then have, well, there are studies that, that have came out years ago that show that, you know, that, that circle right around the cannabis dispenser is actually safer than that one circle kind of further out in, in a neighborhood. So I think we eventually will have data uh, mm -hmm. on our side on on all of these issues, whether it be, you know, youth consumption. And I'm a huge advocate for youth prevention education. That is one. If there's if there's probably there's a lot of things that we got wrong, I think, in the rollout of of, mm -hmm. of, of legalized cannabis. The one one probably the thing I'm most proud about in Sacramento is that we did it with a youth prevention campaign at the mm -hmm. same time. And we haven't really we haven't done that statewide yet, and um, not on You're, not at scale, right? Not at scale, but but the one thing I think that's really important, and I was sharing this with a council member who just got elected in a jurisdiction and is really concerned about the youth component. I think the one thing that people forget is that a very significant um, share of the cannabis tax revenues goes towards. Um, or is, is is earmarked to go towards youth prevention intervention programming. So there's kind of this this sixty percent bucket after you go through you know paying you know yeah right. So there's a substantial amount of revenue that um, goes towards uh, better educating and informing the public. Um, around youth access and youth prevention um, and intervention. And I think I think a lot of folks lose sight of that. The cannabis industry is funding that. The the legal cannabis industry is providing um, funding to in furtherance of that of that goal. And so I think I think that gets lost upon many um, both consumers as well as the industry. And I actually uh, back in July, and then I did it again in September. Uh, did a whole PowerPoint webinar with CCIA on on how cannabis tax dollars are spent, and I was pretty shocked at at um, how how many in industry don't know 
what we're actually paying for, but we're, we are, are though these revenues are, are um, leading to substantial investments in um, that, in that public health area, as well as environmental mitigation um, and additional enforcement. And I think it's, it's important to, to tell that story. Yeah. And I think all of those, 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 so many of what those cannabis dollars go towards, I think mm -hmm. most people in the industry are, are, don't have issue with like we're happy no right that no. there are dollars going towards youth prevention like w you know we right. want those dollars to go to for in environmental you know cleanup for you know uh past illegal cultivation yeah. operations and, and and a long list of, of of things i think you know by and large the folks in the cannabis industry really are um you know uh still have a little bit of that you know hippie in them uh <laughs> that they you know, whether you're old enough to be a hippie, you got it. If you've been in the cannabis industry, you kind of got it, you know, through uh, osmosis of kind of being in the industry. But we are environmentally sensitive, right? Yes, we, we you know, it's, um, which brings me to one of my favorite topics oh. child resistant packaging and plastics. Oh, oh yes. When, when. <laughs> When are we going to see maybe some uh, some more kind of common sense applied to to, to some of the packaging um, mm -hmm. for 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 cannabis and and you know what's your kind of take on 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 all the packaging that's that's taking place within and is there really going to be an opportunity to to change that in the near future or at least kind of reduce that yeah. waste component. I, I think there's a tremendous opportunity. I really do. Um, you know, I, it, it may not happen this year, but but I will say, um, and this is kind of a little bit off track, but 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 bear with me. So there was this bill in 2020 this year, um, AB 1470, and it was really a testing bill, a final form testing bill. But it, it would have allowed for the testing uh, final form would be redefined, so you could test. Um, you know, raw oil, you could test bulk flour. And, um, and in the context of those conversations, there was a lot of messaging around um, how you, you, you know, you reduce waste, because you're not having to unpackage the product to undergo testing and then throw, throw that packaging away. Um, so that bill was ultimately vetoed, but it was vetoed by the governor with a message around wanting to have that conversation and again in the context of agency consolidation so i i expect that 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 is a conversation that will occur that was another issue that came up in my call earlier today where we were trying to navigate regulatory barriers and, and challenges the industry's facing um, and then the other point i'll make on the packaging is is we actually had uh, a legislator and she has termed out but senator hannah beth jackson um, was poised to champion that issue this year. Um, but then when COVID hit, it was like, okay, well, this, you know, there was a limited number of bills and it kind of fell by the wayside. Um, my assumption is there's going to be legislators that are going to pick up where she left off, um, but she will not be returning. Um, and, you know, there's a broader context and, and conversation around single use plastic and waste. And I think the cannabis industry is poised to weigh in to some of those legislative discussions because it is it is wasteful. Um, and I think it's I think the, the burdens that we place on uh, landfills are, are things that pain all of us and the cost implications associated with it. So um, I think it's certainly a platform that we're prepared to advance this year. 
Um, and those were just two examples of, of kind of how I see us navigating going into 2021. Yeah, I mean, as a as a parent, my biggest concerns um, as it relates to cannabis are, are isn't dried isn't dried flour, right? I'm not worried about my six year old, soon to be seven year old, you know, eating finding flour, flour finding flour and eating it, right? I mean, it's <laughs> they're just not going to do it, even if it was decarboxylated, mm -hmm. um, which flour generally isn't sold decarboxylated. Um, you know, they're just not going to eat it. And if they did, you know, it doesn't really, you know, it's not psychotropic because it's not decarboxylated, no. you know. This might give them uh, a stomachache. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it just doesn't taste good. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, certainly edibles, like, absolutely, right? The child sure. printed packaging on edibles. And, you know, and the, and the one balance that I haven't seen that it, um, is – is you know we require you know this a lot of packaging around dried flour, yeah. you know, and and the vape carts like, but okay, right. what's but what's but what's the first thing you do with the vape cart? Take it out of all this packaging, and it never goes back into that again, right? I and, know. Um, you know, I just saw. Uh, I will give a shout out to um, uh, Dime, uh, the company Dime. Um, uh, I saw one of their vape cartridges the other day that almost had a child-proof filter feature built into it right and i'm oh, sure other people are doing it but it was the battery right so in order to turn this thing on you had to click the battery five times which i had to pull out the instruction manual and actually read like, this I, I have to look this stuff up on youtube you know <laughs> like, so. this stuff doesn't, like this thing doesn't work i'm like yeah it, it's kind of like <laughs> brand new it was, yeah. it was it was it was child resistant um, <laughs> You know, but you could turn the battery on and off. And I was like, oh, that's great. Because, mm -hmm. like, as a parent, like, I've got a lot more peace of mind knowing that 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 they're not going to be able to just, you know, hit the, hit it and be able to, like, turn that thing on. Um, right. So I'd love, to, I'd love to see some more technology kind of child-resistant things like that kind of make their way. Um, because I think things like that are way more child-resistant than, than the packaging that just gets ripped off and then, you know, disposed of immediately. Right. Well, you remind me of of, of something I, I actually wrote into CCIA's guiding policy document last year that I I, I just remembered is is again one of one of our as the association one of its standing policies is um, can we not approach you know packaging on a product by product basis? To your point, do you really need all of the same requirements for cannabis flower as as you would? desire for a cannabis edible and can we look at this less holistically and more on a, on a product by product basis so you're reducing um, those packaging requirements which frankly are unnecessary and, and and really don't achieve the desired objective so I think there's I, I think that's another way to yeah. kind of look at this going forward um, that I just didn't think about until you started <laughs> raising those yeah. examples. But um, it certainly, it certainly comes up in all the conversations I have with license holders. So. Yeah. I think there's so much common ground really between the industry and mm -hmm. the general public around, um, you know, issues of youth prevention and, and, and child resistant packaging as a whole. I think there's so much common ground there. There's uh, uh, hopefully, um, some you know some some steps that we can take to reduce some of that environmental impact and still provide you know and still meet those goals of of, of limiting access to to young people and children to, to these products so agreed 
Agreed. So we're getting close on time and I want to like make sure that we get in how to the, to the, to the folks in the industry that are, that are out there, how do they get involved with CCIA and, and why should they get involved with CCIA and, 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 and what are those opportunities to, mm-hmm. to kind of, to get involved? Um, what do those look like if they, if they yeah. kind of choose to pursue that? Well, thanks. Um, so no, thanks for that. I'm, I'm sure I'm, uh, CCA always welcomes the plug. Um, you know, I, I think, first of all, why, why get involved with an association in general? And, and I, you know, this, this is an industry that, that is, it is harder to attract members. And I, I certainly appreciate that. And there's also a lot of organizations, but, um, but we can't do the work we do without the support of industry. So, um, you know, and I hear that time and time again, it's like, oh, we'll let somebody else do it. And it's like, we, we've got immense challenges. And so um, the more we can build membership capacity, um, the more we can influence policy across the street. It's just, it's just how it works. Um, and so that's really the basic, but um, the thing I like about CCIA is it's, it, it, as an organization, it's incredibly transparent. So all of our members are listed on the website. We have, um, we have a, a comprehensive policy committee structure that allows the industry to provide direct input to staff. Um, I'm not always on the policy committees because I, I actually have my own firm and, and represent CCIA as one of many clients. Um, but that impa- input is shared with me and that really helps drive our agenda across the street in the Capitol um, and also with the regulatory agencies. So I think membership is important. Um, but it also it also helps, too, because. Um, you know, a lot of the work that we do involves, you know, a strategic calls to action. So the more members we have, the more I can tap into that base. So if I have, you know, a sticky legislator who who may or may not be with us on a, a subject matter, I can kind of help having members in that district kind of help drive that policy home. You and I, in particular, Joe, you know how how important and relevant that is. And so that comes with building capacity and building membership. So um, I would argue that that the dues are, are not terribly steep. I think the lowest tier is, I think, 1500 a year and the highest is 10000 a year. And with each, you've got different benefits associated with that. But but that is really what 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 drives us. It's that member input, and then the more resources and input from the members, the more effective I am across the street. So, look, if you don't like CCIA, join another association. But I think the key is is that um, getting involved is 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 critical. And 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 you know, and I know there is a tendency in this industry, and it's totally okay. Um, you know, to that for individual ent- companies to want to drive policy, and and there's sometimes that works, but. Um, you know, most of the the work that I do with the governor's office and and with this, the the licensing entities, they want to know that I'm representing a broader coalition. Like, what are your 500 plus members saying? Um, and I think that's important. So, um, you know, particularly going into this year, particularly going into this year, you know, we've got agency consolidation, and that that could um, that's going to cover the whole gamut if we do this successfully, where we can talk about tax reduction, tax reform, um, agency consolidation, um, can capture any number of things, trade samples, we didn't bring up trade samples, that's, that's something we're going to work on as part of that process. 
um, provisional licensing. So I, again, the more the more we engage um, license holders, the, the better equipped we are to represent them effectively across the street. Yeah, I I think you you said that beautifully. Um, I did. You know, somebody who's no, well, it's someone who's 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 you know sat in the you know in 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 the in the government seat and had folks you know come in. Yeah. It is so much easier to deal with you know the representative when you know that they represent the industry as opposed to like one person in the industry or like right. two people in the industry. And so you know for those of for those folks that are on the fence about you know being part of an an an, an, an advocacy organization. Um, you know, for whatever reason, get over it. I mean, there's a reason. Look around the look right. look around the state, right? It's like why did look at the success of, of of the labor unions. Look at the success of 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 the of small businesses, right? You can go up and down the state around um, uh, groups of like-minded folks, whether they be licensees of plumbers or electricians or small business mm-hmm. owners or oil companies, right? they all come together and work around those common goals. And, and I think the, the canvas industry um, certainly has not um, hit its apex of, of, of yeah. ability uh, yet. I think it has so much potential to flex its power in the future, but doing that requires coming together, right? Which, Agreed. which, which CCA, you know, has, <laughs> has really taken the lead on for the, since you know really you know since 2014 is that when it well I, you out? know i think they've been they've been around since 13 and that's when 13. i met him you know that's when i started working with them um as a staffer but yeah representing since 14 so it, it is the longest i think the oldest uh organization there there are other associations out there um uh so there there, there are options but um it, it to your point, and thank you, Joe. It's it's really really important. It it really is, particularly right now. And and if you don't like something that your association is doing, or you, you don't like something you heard CCA is doing, that's the whole point. Like join the association because there's so many opportunities to shape and influence the policy. And if you're not at the table, right? You know, right. you you don't really have you don't have a voice, and you really shouldn't be complaining. <laughs> it's my opinion. So, yeah. Where can people find you in your just, you know, individual contacts, I mean, in terms of the website, yeah. social media or anything like that? Yeah, thank, no, thanks. And I didn't even plug my own firm. So. Yeah, you got to give that in. <laughs> I know, but how terrible of me. Um, <laughs> well, so for me, I, I own um, I own and operate a firm, Precision Advocacy, here in Sacramento. So we, we specialize in, in cannabis policy. Um, and then I also have a local government arm because as Joe knows, I actually, I didn't get my start uh, in cannabis. I, I got my start representing local government. So um, I've, I've worked in, in for a county, I've represented cities. So there is that component, which um, is, it kind of makes me a bit unique. Um, and how I navigate those conflicts has been challenging. But, um, but what's great is it, it really gets me 
uh, gives me the ability to be at the table in some of those uh, those local government association discussions that I wouldn't otherwise be part of. And and um, so that's been really exciting. Um, so I, I really do have the opportunity in my firm representing both um, to really understand where the locals are coming from and get that local perspective. Um, so that's those are kind of the two areas. I do have some other private sector clients I work with. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been operating for about two and a half years now um, and continue to, to build the practice. Um, so that you can find me at precisionadvocacy.co, not com, but co. And then CCIA, uh, for information on the industry association, it's a long one, but it's, it's cacannabisindustry.org. Um, but either way and, and, and through either uh, website, you can find me and I'm always willing to um, be supportive of industry and, and, and take questions and, and comments and concerns from industry, whether I'm wearing my CCIA hat or my hat as, as the owner of, of Precision. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. You guys will, you know, when this, when this whole pandemic is behind us, you're going to have to come and check out the office. So yeah, hang out. I got this like great that. office space. Yeah, I got this great office space downtown and no one's here. <laughs> I can hear myself awesome. echo. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's it's always good to catch up with you. Always good to catch up with you. It's it's great to see you, Joe. It's been a long time. And I, you know, depending on, unless I, unless I just, you know, failed miserably, um, you know, would love to come back and kind of keep you guys updated and keep your your uh, viewers updated on everything that's going on across the street. It's going to be a really big year. So um, hopefully yeah. we can have more conversations. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely take you up on that for sure. Thanks, Ryan. All right. Thank All right. you so much, Jamie. We'll let you go. All right. Thank okay. you, guys. Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye -bye. Thank you. Bye, Amy. Bye.